I'm your host, Nick Dyson, the Scientific Director at the Mass General Cancer Center, and this is episode 44. Today I'm speaking with Tim Padera. Tim is an Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology and a researcher at the Mass General Edwin L. Steele Laboratories for Tumor Biology. Tim and a postdoc in his lab, uh, Ethel Pereira, have uh, just published a paper in Science this past March, which is a really clever paper that examines uh, lymph node metastasis and the route that circulating tumor cells take as they colonize distant organs. And I'm really happy to have the chance to talk with you, Tim, and find out more about this study. So welcome. Thank you. But before we get to the paper, I know that you have this really fascinating journey. It's a little unusual for the scientists here, so I was hoping you could tell us a bit about it. You, you were born, I know, in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, and you were telling me in a small town, Illinois. Well, yeah, it started out as a small town called Libertyville, which when you tell people that, no one believes it's actually a real place. Because <laughs> yes. it just sounds like it's a made-up place. But I assure you it's real. And um, I guess the only link to the Boston area is that probably the most famous person from Libertyville was Adelaide E. Stevenson, who was a presidential candidate in 1956, and he was nominated by then-Senator John F. Kennedy. So if you go to the museum here in mm. Boston, you can hear Senator Kennedy nominating Adelaide E. Stevenson, the man from Libertyville. <laughs> so if you're ever there, that's my hometown, and that's about its only real claim to fame. So yeah, so I grew up in what was distant, distant suburbs of Chicago, and now it's probably considered suburbs of Chicago just because yeah. the sprawl of the city is moved up there. Um, yeah, so I went to high school there. and Were your parents scientists? Um, no. So um, my parents are both first-generation um, Americans. Um, my mom's family came from Ireland. She grew up on the west side of Chicago where she mm. met my father, who's from like Czech bohemian oh, wow. ancestry, um, who also was on the west side of Chicago. So that's yes. where I met. Um, and so my mom never really had the opportunity to go to college, and my dad got drafted into the Korean War. Luckily, stationed on the east coast of the U.S., so uh -huh. he didn't have to go anywhere. And so when he came out of that, he just started working, and he eventually put himself through college at night and trained to become a mechanical engineer, and then uh, was basically a draftsman and a mechanical yes. engineer for his career. I imagine then that he had a, uh, put a premium on education. He was very keen on you going to school. Yes, because, you know, of his seven siblings and my mother's, you know, five other siblings, he was the only one with a college education. Yes. You know, and he saw how it advanced his life and career in comparison. They realized that that was our, really our ticket was through education right. and, and bettering ourselves. So. And uh, you went to Northwestern? Yep. So I didn't stray too far from the north suburbs of Chicago. So Northwestern's just the border in Evanston, Illinois, which is the border suburb of Chicago. Yes. And studied chemical engineering initially because I liked chemistry and I liked math, and that was the merge. And the further along you get into that program and you realize what chemical engineering chemical engineers do, it didn't really fascinate me as much as some of the other activities that I'd gotten myself involved with in college. So part of the way I paid for college was with a, with a job on campus. I was involved with sports medicine. And mm -hmm. so I was starting to, you know, get interested in treatment and how, you know, athletes recover from injury and all that. And so it sort of morphed me into the biomedical engineering space. Yes. Um, where it's ultimately where I finished my 
undergraduate degree. And then that, so what, what uh, discipline was it in the end? So honestly, I have diplomas in chemical engineering and biomedical engineering yeah. because I had gone far enough in the chemi yes. curriculum, and they're similar enough where you yeah. can take enough overlapping classes yeah. to make it yeah. work. So, And at that point, what did you imagine you would do? So I, it, as an undergrad, I'd been involved with a, a few different research opportunities mm. um, and sort of that scientist wanting to figure out how stuff works was kind of burning pretty strongly. So I definitely liked this problem-solving aspect and trying to take problems and break them down and understand really how they work with that knowledge being the key to being able to hopefully solve some of those problems. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, I was thinking of things in environmental sciences and, and other disciplines, but really probably because I was working sort of in that medical space and learning about how the body was working and recovering that sort of drove me into to medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and so that led me to think about graduate school. My older brother had been to graduate school, was in a PhD program out here in Boston, actually. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'd sort of seen that modeled for me and he was saying good things about it and was enjoying it. And, you know, I knew that I liked research and was already in labs and enjoying it. So I sort of, I really literally just followed my brother's footsteps out to Boston um, and got into the, the medical engineering, medical physics program, um, which is a joint program between MIT and Harvard Medical School. Okay. Where you sort of do your engineering training at MIT, but then you take some of the medical school curriculum at yes. Harvard. So it's a cross-disciplinary venture that helps engineers get into their real world environment and then ultimately um you would be based in one or other sites is that how it goes so it... well so the curriculum is really in both places and then you can choose basically any lab yes. within the harvard mit community to do a thesis. So people end up at teaching hospitals, they end up at, you know, the main campuses or, or at the quad yeah. at HMS. You can pretty much, I, I know people that actually found a lab that they fell in love with at Boston University mm -hmm. that isn't part of that and they didn't have a problem with it. I mean, your yes. degree still was granted. Yes. So I was think one of the big challenges when you're faced with so many choices is finding something that you really love because uh, there are too many options. Yeah, it, it's basically infinite. Um, and, you know, as I've advanced through, I now actually help with the admissions for the HST, the, the medical engineering program. And that's the question is, how do you find labs? Yeah. So how did I find yes. the lab? But it's, <clears throat> I sort of describe it as maximum chaos, <laughs> but, but maximum opportunity, which I think is a good metaphor for kind of scientific discovery anyways, right? So there are so many possibilities, so many iterations, but you have to figure out what your criteria are and what your sort of, you know, checklist is for what's driving you passionately about your science, but also then the fit and the atmosphere and the, the yes. sort of environment that it sits yeah. in. And um, I found myself, having spent my life sort of in engineering, find myself drawn out of the engineering. And so, and it's sort of the labs that I really became interested in, actually all three of them were mass general mm -hmm. labs and not just... You know, maybe it was because of Mass General or not, but it was just the areas. And it was because they were focused on problems that I was interested in. So yeah. it's cancer and diabetes. Um, you know, there's sort of these three great labs, and I knew I couldn't make a bad decision. But I ultimately decided on uh, the cancer lab, which was with Rakesh Jain, 
who is the current director of the mm-hmm. Steel Lab. So it was because of just the, the problem itself is this trying to solve problems type thing. There's a paradox with cancer metastasis, which is there's 100 years of literature suggesting that solid tumors don't have lymphatic vessels inside of them. Yeah. But we know that lymph solid tumors metastasize commonly to lymph nodes. Yes. So if the tumor doesn't have lymphatic vessels, which is the connection between the two, but yet they're getting to the lymph nodes, how does that happen? Yes. And so that really became the basis for my thesis. And so I spent a lot of time exploring how that could work. And really the answer is that all the lymphatics around the tumor become hyperfunctional because of this lack of function inside the tumors. Mm. And so because of that, if you get invasive cancer cells, they can find these vessels and get to the lymph node. Um, the other sort of part of that that makes it easier, some not, not easier, but easier to get to lymphatic vessels than maybe, say, a blood vessel, is that lymphatic vessels are designed to allow can- cells in generally, so dendritic cells and other sorts of cells in the immune system to get to lymph node to generate responses. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit more opportunity and yes. chemotaxis toward those vessels around these yes. solid tumors anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I was struck by the fact that the path you took was very much a device-heavy approach, and it used a lot of your um, engineering background, or that was a skill that I thought really made it very successful for you. Yeah, mainly using, being able to use imaging to yeah. watch some of these processes in, in real time. So I, I've spent a lot of time taking living animals and putting them under microscopes so that you can longitudinally follow a disease as it progresses. So I can yes. start a small tumor and watch how it formed and watch how the vasculature, both blood and lymphatic, would change as that grows. Yes. And then you can realize what's happening to the lymphatic vessels and that they're not penetrating right. into the tumors right. and such. Because right. yeah. a, a key part of the paper that uh, we're going to talk about is this uh, live imaging of the lymph nodes and the cells in the lymph nodes. And that seems an incredible technology to have, very powerful to have, but also must have taken a lot of time to develop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I, I sort of walked into a, a good situation. So the Steel Labs was set up by Rakesh Jain to have, to basically do live animal imaging. Yes. And so a lot of the infrastructure was already there when I arrived. Um, And we've updated and and tweaked things, but sort of the base technologies and the the sort of protocols for for doing things were in place. Um, Sort of as I transitioned from graduate student and I, you know, really as a scientist, my path of you know, PhD to academia is really like I did everything wrong because I haven't really ever left yes. the, the same sort of environment where I did my PhD. I've sort of it's, transitioned. It, and it's unusual to do that in one place. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that tells you, I think, is that you were successful because it's only the success that gives you that opportunity to stay. Well, that's that's very kind <laughs> of you. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to think that, but... Um, you know, because I had the sort of engineering background and was able to deal with the microscopes and maintain that, that sort of gave me a role within this yes. bigger group. And then, you know, I sort of started taking the research in a slightly different direction, which was away from those lymphatic vessels around the tumor and looking more 
down into the lymph node, which is yes. where this, this paper comes yes. in. Is and, that the transition from your PhD into your postdoc then? Well, so actually my postdoc was really focused on answering the question of why we didn't see the lymphatics get into the tumor. Uh-huh. And it's really a... So if you take a step back, cancer is a very heterogeneous disease, right? It's mm-hmm. driven by different genetic mutations. Yeah. and But this sort of universal finding of solid tumors that there weren't functional lymphatic vessels inside. So it's not going to be a molecule. It's got to be something that's more universal across all these things. And so simply thinking a tumor is a bunch of cells growing in a confined space, over-proliferating. And as they do that, they actually get compressed. They get have to push on things to actually create space. Mm-hmm. And clinically, that's seen in things like spinal cord compressions or mm-hmm. superior vena cava syndrome. So we know that they can produce this force. And so really, our hypothesis was that that force was also getting exerted internally and causing the collapse of lymphatic vessels. And so you can see, when you look with um, under a microscope at histological sections of tissue, you can actually see that there are like little tiny things that could be lymphatic vessels, but they they're collapsed. There's no lumen. We see it with blood vessels too. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my postdoc was showing that this compression can actually cause a collapse of the microvasculature and tumors. Um, and it was at that point where I was starting to think that I'd like a career in academia, so I was writing lots of grants, and mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to get a grant from the, the National Cancer Institute, the uh, NIH, that was designed to transition postdoctoral fellows into faculty positions. This is the K99? Yeah, the K99, yeah. R00 award, the, the pathway for independence. Yes. And, and I will say, for my career, that is exactly what it did. It allowed me to transition from sort of mentor-dependent into my independent research group. And I think, again, what was unique and what everyone will tell you I did wrong, and, you know, there's some truth to that, is that I didn't transition to someplace else because of the infrastructure that was mm-hmm. available and the opportunity available in the steel labs. To start that anew somewhere else would have been a huge financial investment yes. and Yes, time sink. I got a sense of that when you were showing me around the lab space, that it's very unusual to see the animal space and such uh, large, expensive microscopes so close together. Yeah. And, and that seemed like an infrastructure that was unusual. That it would be, I could see that it would be difficult to recreate that from scratch and very expensive. Yeah, and very expensive. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I feel fortunate to be given the opportunity to stay, basically. Um, yeah, and since then, you know, to, to again sort of move away from what I was doing in my, my thesis focusing on the primary tumor, it was really the realization that to clinically intervene in lymph node metastasis in that metastatic process is challenging because many patients with their diagnosis, they've already spread to the lymph nodes. And so um, in my independent group, we've been looking at what happens when those cancer cells start to seed the lymph node? And can we design therapy to actually eradicate disease in lymph nodes? Yes. So, you know, many cancer therapies are designed to the primary tumor. Mm-hmm. And in many disease sites, we've actually gotten pretty good at dealing with the primary tumor. But when it spreads, yes. it's clear that the metastasis, whether it's in lymph nodes or other distant organs, don't respond the same way. And in the lymph node, from, again, my perspective, it's a very interesting organ because it's not only a common site of metastasis, but it's also a critical organ for immune system function. 
And so you've got this organ that's supposed to be helping protect your body mm-hmm. from foreign things, mm-hmm. which theoretically could be generating responses against the tumor. And now you've thrown a bunch of cells that shouldn't be there in it. Yes. And so there's a bunch of interesting questions, all with clinical implications about how cancer is progressing. And so we sort of take the view of asking, what does the lymph node do to the cancer cells and change their reaction to chemotherapies and how can they grow in this environment? Mm -hmm. And the topic of the the paper we're going to talk about is, can those cells actually leave the lymph node and spread somewhere else? And then we ask all the reverse questions of what happens to the lymph node, which is supposed to be helping us in our immune system when you throw these cancer cells in, is immune function affected in what ways? And can we understand that to maybe fix both ends of those problems? Right, right. And what would you say then is your standard experimental procedure? Because your your lab does have this uh, theme of being able to visualize the changes that are happening um, within the lymph node. Is that a core part of most of your types of experiments? I guess that's what I was really wanting to ask. Um, I th- it's always a tool that we have. I would like to think that we always try and identify the problem first. Yes. And understand where the either the lack of knowledge is and really trying to take it from where the unmet needs and the unsolved problems that are affecting the ability to treat patients with cancer. And Mm so a lot of it is identifying where clinicians are having problems making decisions and whether it's because of lack of information or not having good ops. So they know where the decision point is but not having a good option Mm-hmm. in which to act upon that decision point. So we've been trying to identify those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, using whatever tools are necessary yes. to address them. Yes. And sometimes it involves imaging. Yes. Um, and because we have those advantages, we might select problems that are more prone to those yes. approaches, but it's definitely not necessary. We've yeah. had yeah. stories that have come out that haven't involved microscopy at all. Yes. Um, so. I guess the other thing um, that is really in my independent lab that I've looked at because of my background studying the lymphatic vessels around the tumor is really just looking at the normal physiology of lymphatic vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, and really there's a, a wide range of lymphatic diseases that aren't really well characterized or um, don't really get that much attention. Yes. Um, so lymphedema. So the lymphatic system generally has three main roles. The first is to take fluid from tissues and return it back to the the blood circulation. So this prevents you from getting swelling everywhere. Mm -hmm. The other is to, as it's doing that, it's actually bringing all that information to your lymph nodes. So that's helping determine whether you should be generating immune responses. So if you have a viral infection in a tissue, it will bring that viral antigen to the lymph node so you can generate a response to fight it off. And then it actually helps with um, absorbing dietary lipids, right? So there's a host of lymphatic diseases when those processes stop. And, you know, for example, with the swelling, just that tissue fluid swelling, there's 10 million Americans with lymphedema, right? Three million of them are caused by cancer therapy. And there is no cure for lymphedema, mm. right? And so the these patients have, you know, sort of a 
debilitating. Like if you had your right arm 15 pounds heavier than your left arm, it's really changes their lives. And, um, you know, there's psychosocial impacts. They can't do things that they normally would like to do. They have to wear heavy garments on a hot day like today. Yes. And, you know, they're, they basically are hiding because, you know, that's, they're just, they, they're a tough group of patients, like, cause they just, they just grin and bear it. But, you know, it seems like there's such an opportunity to help them. They're, it's like an epidemic in this country that's silent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of our research focus is actually trying to study these vessels, understand what happens in some of these different disease situations mm-hmm. so that we can hopefully come up with some different solutions for them than what they have now. Yeah. So. That's an amazing journey for a uh, chemical engineer, uh, you know, from small town near Chicago, uh, to, to have built and developed this uh, very medical focus. Yeah, I sometimes refer to myself as a recovering engineer yeah. at this point. I've embraced the biology because I think that's where a lot of the solutions are lying. Yes. So, yes. But I still keep my eye on the technology because technology is actually changing how we do biology. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you uh, have also worked with clinicians, right, with uh, medical oncologists uh, in some of the problems that you... Yeah, well, and it's really with conversations with with the clinical people here at Mass General that have helped really define where we should be focusing our energy. Yes. Um, And, you know, the environment here, because clinicians are willing to talk to little scientists like myself you know, with no reason to, it doesn't benefit them initially just to have these conversations as I'm trying to learn about what the problems they're facing. But they've all been very receptive and it's really changed our approach to, you know, a lot of the things that we've been studying. And it it is amazing that you, in, you know, MGH, Harvard, MIT community, you can find someone that's working on something similar to be able to at least start having these conversations and and learn and get mentored by a lot of these people. Yes. One of the things that struck me uh, uh, reading about your CV was that you are then going back and trying to help mentor um, other students who are coming in through a similar background with a similar engineering training and and uh, uh, helping them navigate through the hospitals and the different institutions. Yeah, um, it's 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 yeah, it's sort of my academic hobby to be honest. So you know, again, I'm a recovering engineer. I admit it, but you know, a problem with many engineers is they will really develop a unique and highly technical skill set and then they continue to pursue you know solutions for those skill sets in the absence of really strongly identifying the problem they're trying to solve mm-hmm. so they can really advance the technology and the the question sometimes you they need to be asking is to what end like what is why am i continuing to yes slightly advance this and if you can harness that potential and bring it to the right problems you can make a big difference exactly and that's so you know the the mentoring and the training program that i'm involved with is really taking engineers and having them start with what's the problem can you go and come back with 10 unmet medical needs yes and let's really define whether they're unmet and their needs and so you need to go out and talk to the stakeholders. You need to talk to the doctors. You need to talk to, you know, the competing technologies that have thought of this problem and addressed mm-hmm. it and really start to define the question. And it's actually been amazing through that process that we've seen, like, unmet medical needs identified, alternative solutions, and through 
the program has been running for six or seven, maybe eight years now, and there's probably four or five like true patentable technologies. And com- one company has started. I think a few more are about to start. Yes. And it's a range of things. It's from how to get prescriptions quickly for people with vision impairment in like India, or you know, all sorts of different sort of unique challenges. But yes. Yes. it's engineers not taking what they've already known, but yeah. identifying the problem and bringing skills. This was one of the things that surprised me about the uh, Mass General, um, was the variety of skills that are brought here. Uh, I had never really thought about this as being a concentration for engineers. And, um, you know, the more I learn about the research here, I'm always Im- deeply impressed by the, the variety of skills and uh, backgrounds. Of, so th- that was a fascinating journey. Thank you for explaining <laughs> that. Sure. Um, We'll take a break and we'll come back and, and talk more specifically about uh, your recent paper and the, the story behind that. Okay. Thank you. To read Tim's recent article at Advances at the Mass General Cancer Center, go to massgeneral.org cancer advances. Join me for episode 45 where I'll talk with Tim and Ethel about their recent paper that was published in Science.